0: Good evening. My name is Barbara Kane. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Science. And I want very much to welcome you all this evening. Um, Before we begin proceedings, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which University of Sydney is built, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, on whose ancestral lands we are now situated. And I want also to, to note our recognition that while we're very proud of this as a place of learning now, it's been a kind of important place of learning and cultural protection over many, many centuries. So it's a very great pleasure to us to host this inaugural Australian Book Review patrons lecture. Um, It seems a sort of fitting indication of what has become quite a close connection between ABR and the University of Sydney over the past few years. Um, A a connection that's been very much fostered by by Peter Rose who has been a kind of editor in residence at the University of Sydney, spending some time here each year working with um, staff and postgraduate research students and and helping them to kind of expand in a way the kind of writing so that it, it, it suits a wider audience and particularly um, the ABR. So there are now many staff and um, who are both contributors and readers, and of course people whose work is reviewed in the ABR. And we feel a very, very strong sense of connection to it. I think Peter indicated that when he suggested that we we, we might like to host this first um, patron's lecture. And indeed, we do. So I would now like to welcome Peter to to, to introduce the lecture and the lecturer. I don't want to introduce Peter because I'm sure he's much better known to most of you than I am. Um, he, He has, I think, in an extraordinary way been involved in literary production both as a writer and as an editor and publisher. I first met Peter some 25 years ago when he rang me up one day and asked me if I would edit a book for him when he was working as commissioning editor of OUP. And that was the sort of beginning of a companion to Australian feminism. Um, And of course, Peter is very well known as a poet, as the writer of a wonderful family memoir, and more recently as a novelist. And so Peter, let me hand over to you.
1: Thank you, Barbara, very much. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, we're going to leave the air conditioning on for obvious reasons, but so we will all all project. Uh, it's terrific to see so many people here tonight, and you're all most um, uh, welcome. Uh, we're glad you are able to attend this inaugural ABR patrons' annual lecture, the first in what we hope will be a long series of lectures by distinguished Australians, that will complement the work, the content, and the character of Australian Book Review. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, Mr Kim Williams AM. After the lecture, ABR chair, Mr Colin Gove QC will respond, and Kim Williams has agreed to answer some questions. First though, a few very brief acknowledgements of certain individuals and organisations close to Australian Book Review we're most grateful to the University of Sydney and I thank the Dean for her welcome. ABR, National in Title, Mission, Authorship and Readership, is delighted to be able to present the lecture at this university. My editorial links with many senior scholars here including Barbara uh, Kane who is general editor of that Oxford Companion go back decades now. The university is a notable contributor to the magazine through ideas and sophisticated journalism. These links have, as Barbara indicated, been strengthened in recent years by a series of editorial residencies that I've been conducting at the university, all aimed principally at increasing the number of Sydney University contributors to ABR uh, very successfully too. And here I want to thank, particularly, Professors Margaret Harris and Ellen McConnell for their strong support. Sydney Ideas, which is presenting this lecture, one of more than a hundred, I guess, they'll be doing this year, it's a fantastic program, is always superb to work with, and I want to thank Meredith Hall, wherever she, she is. Australian Book Review has a number of creative partnerships around Australia none more significant than the one with Copyright Agency through its cultural fund. This support has enabled us to create programs like the Calibre Prize for an Outstanding Essay and the new uh, States of Poetry uh, project, which are unfolding, as well as partnering in the Inspired Reading Australia project. ABR has long enjoyed support from the Australia Council where we have key organisation status. We salute the work of the Council and are pleased to be joined this evening, I think, by Jill Eddington, Director of Literature and some of Jill's colleagues. Tonight's lecture is named thus for a reason. It reflects and advances the extraordinary generosity of a cohort of something like 150 generous Australians who share our view that if ABR is to fulfil its obligations to Australian writers and readers, it must engage in the kind of cultural philanthropy that has bolstered art museums, opera companies, theatre companies and libraries and the like for decades and decades. With support from our many patrons, ABR has been able to do the following since 2010 treble our base rate for contributors, a trend we aim to advance this year, create and extend our three literary prizes, Uh, the Calibre Prize already mentioned, which Colin Golvan supports, the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, which former chair Morag Fraser supports, and the Elizabeth Jolly Short Story Prize which is supported by ABR board member Ian Dixon, with total prize money now of $12,500. That's open, by the way, for short story writers in the room until April. To date, we've offered about 15 writers' fellowships, each now worth at least $7,500. We offer a $45,000 full-time editorial internship each year, which is unlike anything else in the publishing sector, I gather, through Arts Update and New Development, we publish timely, lengthy reviews of new plays, films, operas, ballets, concerts, and art exhibitions, all open access on our website. In 2014, David Malouf agreed to become the ABR uh, Laureate, it, and it's very good to have our laureate with us this evening. David has just nominated the first of the ABR Laureate's fellows, poet. Michael Aiken from this university who will use his fellowship with ABR to write a verse verse novel. Private Patronage has done much for this magazine, but this select list, much more for this magazine, but this select list will give you a sense of the transformative effect of patron support. I thank all of my fellow patrons present tonight and and as I welcome ABR subscribers in the room. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the patrons program, there is information inside the magazine on your seat. Our message is a, a brief one. We encourage those who are in a position to do so to support the magazine that supports Australian writers. Hosts always say this of course, but Kim Williams really does need very little introduction in Sydney or at this university, and my remarks will be brief. Kim's has been one of the most stellar careers in the arts and media in this country. He has been, as you know, CEO of News Corp Australia, Foxtel, Fox Studio, Studios Australia, the Australian Film Commission, and Music Aviva. He is a commissioner of the AFL, and for many years chaired the Sydney Opera House Trust. Is the current chair of Copyright Agency. Kim Williams certainly emphatically puts his money where his mouth is. Uh, a true enabler of creative talent, he is an often unsung supporter of individual artists and arts organisations. He is a long time and most generous patron of Australian Book Review. Colin Golvan and I were delighted when Kim Williams, busy man though he is, accepted our invitation to inaugurate the ABR patrons' annual lecture. So please join me in welcoming Kim Williams, whose lecture is entitled, Cultural Renewal in Modern Australia.
2: Uh, Thank you very much for your generous introduction, Peter. Um, I'd like to to echo the uh, acknowledgement that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. As an Australian, I value the opportunity to acknowledge country as a simple act of reconciliation. I trust that the acknowledgement and respect it invokes resonates with many here today. History matters. Symbols matter especially in a lecture given at an institution which has so much to do with learning, the law and the history of our nation. It's an honour to give the first patrons lecture for Australian Book Review. What I want to address tonight is how we as a community of interested, committed individuals ensure a refreshed approach to philanthropy as an integral component in maintaining and revitalising our cultural landscape. I contend it is an important component in refreshing policy development and engagement with the community and politicians equally. In August of 2014, the book I wrote after leaving News Corp in 2013 was released. It's entitled Rules of Engagement. I described it as a life It's about numerous experiences, observations, enthusiasms and passions in an Australian life one which has been full of opportunity, good fortune, and a rich diversity of outcomes. The chapters cover diverse territory and personal thought and experience snapshots. There's a very personal one about my mum, another about my fascination and admiration for sport, and a whole-hearted one about education and our national dysfunction in the management of its direction. Those chapters are balanced with other offerings, including my constant treasured companions, reading and music. There's something on friendship, with a stern self-assessment as to my own shortcomings in a busy life. That chapter's matched with one on the increasingly challenged art of listening, something I think that is central to rescuing our future. It's a core skill which I observe as increasingly being lost. Active listening is fundamental to setting good policy and to other simple issues, like world peace. The rich experience of my performing arts life, which has provided a central continuity and balance to my view of the world, receives focus. And there's a measured offering on the cinema with the most dangerous of all things, a list of films you must see with a commentary on cinema's often unrecognised role in Australian history. Then there are the obligatory inclusions of television, politics and media, each of which has been core to my professional working life over several decades. Hopefully those chapters provide fodder for laughter and reflection whilst offering some ideas on aspects of Australian life with a focus on accountability. Other contributions are lighter in nature, offering personal observations on the fun of wine and the serendipity which governs well-enjoyed travel. There are also some, hopefully non-ponderous, views on management and leadership, which brings me in a roundabout way back to my subject. Philanthropy, discourse, and what I term the public academy. In Rules of Engagement I mention that as soon as I was able from a young age, I committed between 10 and 25% of my income to philanthropy, assisting the arts, sciences, education, and charitable giving. It's been that way for well over three decades. In the book, I said it is part of my personal ethos from a life spent in the creative community. There's a responsibility to support the arts and creative endeavour, something that in our country is always under a cloud for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is an almost magnetic attraction from many commentators and decision makers to rank philistinism high. In fairness, the arts community is often in response, less than helpful in providing coherent, convincing, countervailing advocacy. Throughout my life, I've increasingly felt as if I'm in a time warp with a creeping sense of deja vu moments arising. Again and again, the same attacks against the arts and creative life are made with a recital of unevenly rehearsed defences following. It happens repeatedly with a sense that the arts community is seen as being ungrateful and ungracious by many with power. The matching response from the arts community often sees most decision-makers, politicians, commentators, bureaucrats and the like as being far distant from creative life and the understanding of it. Frequently those responses can become almost cartoon-like and often rather petty. It is less than helpful to progress or improved common engagement. One modest example of my own personal philanthropy is seen in being a long-term private supporter of Australian Book Review, where I've been pleased to offer financial support together, as Peter said, with around 150 other like-minded individuals. Their support has enabled ABR to go from strength to strength, as it has grown in its capacity to pay contributors, commission important essays, stories and poetry, and also to extend its reach with a range of excellent digital initiatives. I see ABR as a shining independent star. Having recently celebrated a major milestone of 150 issues under the poet Peter Rose's excellent editorial curation, it continues as a really significant independent journal in our land. ABR stands tall as the leading vehicle in print and digital formats devoted to the thoughtful review of a broad spectrum of creative work offered in literature, the performing arts and cinema in our country and is a vital vehicle for original poetry, essays, and short fiction. It is a testament to Peter's personal editorial vision, energy, and above all, remarkable talent. It's a rare pleasure to engage with the product of his and his team's labours and offer direct support to that fine work. Needless to say, government bodies, as Peter mentioned, have been central to ABR's support. ABR's independence and the quality of its endeavour also offers a splendid example of further support sourced from generous giving via diverse philanthropic institutions, including, but not limited to, the Sydney Meyer Fund, the Ian Potter Foundation, Flinders University, and, of course, this great university. And the Copyright Agency's cultural fund, which was championed by the late Brian Johns so admirably over many years, and which I now have the privilege to chair. This sort of mixed body of diverse backers secures an independent life and vital contribution for ABR. Indeed ABR has been central to one of the Copyright Agency Cultural Fund's major philanthropic initiatives, Reading Australia. As many of you will notice there are 20 fabulous essays on books which are included in that program on the ABR website. Reading Australia aims to publish online resources for the teaching and study of Australian literature in Australian schools and universities and also for the body of interested readers nationwide. The total list of almost 200 texts was chosen by a selection panel from the Society of Authors and the website provides resource materials and dozens of essays which provide stylish, helpful, accessible commentaries. The program is about celebrating and promoting a broad body of Australian literature. ABR has commissioned and published some of these essays. The Reading Australia website has many others. Some of the ABR essays have appeared in print, all of them are on the website. They are fine, succinct, original introductions to a body of regrettably often unfairly overlooked work. It is an initiative wholly from the philanthropy of the Copyright Agency's cultural fund in the service of that which constitutes an Australian literary canon. Over time, we hope it will heighten appreciation of Australian writing. It is one of the major philanthropic emanations in literature in recent years, with the funds coming from the special levy on the income of the Copyright Agency for cultural support across many projects before final distributions are made to authors and publishers. It is an investment in the primary value of creators and their work and is central to the spirit of the Copyright Agency with annual dispensations last financial year through the Cultural Fund at $1.95 million. And that is one of the basics for discussion I'm advancing tonight, a refreshed approach to philanthropy. Philanthropy and personal, sometimes selfless commitment to creative endeavor is as old as ancient Egyptian, Chinese, Indian, Persian, Greek or Roman cultural frameworks millennia ago. The noun philanthropy is derived from the Greek philanthropos, meaning man-loving. Most references take it to mean caring for humanity and its development. In a modern sense, philanthropy inherently involves a sense of relationship between the supporter in identifying and exercising their values and the recipient both in the acceptance of the support and the benefit derived from it. This link is, I believe, vital to well-practised philanthropy. I believe it is a central tenet to cultural renewal in the 21st century, a renewal derived from personal care and hopefully in many, if not all instances, a real passion for direct support of creative work. At its best, it is matched with persistent commitment. In my view, we are going to need to have regular recourse to that spirit of passion and commitment if we are going to successfully navigate towards good, bold outcomes through the the present and immediate future in our cultural settings and in related areas of creative and intellectual endeavour. Many have a not entirely unjustified, cautious view of philanthropy with some concerns about the influence of external parties in the financial framework for creative and intellectual life. Frankly, I'm reminded of Gough Whitlam's exhortation in the 1960s when he said that only the impotent are pure. When he said that, he was not advocating the jettisoning of principle or ethical precepts and disciplines, But, rather, he was saying one needs to keep one's eye on primary objectives. We need to measure results, not just inputs or prospective shadows. I wholeheartedly agree and respect the courage of his conviction in prosecuting internal reform of his party almost five decades ago when he made that statement. As you all know, we live in remarkably interesting times. That modern faux Chinese saying is an English term with various origins depending on your reference source but is now known commonly as the Chinese curse with origins in the 1930s. I personally like the Wikipedia entry where it says the saying is apocryphal where no actual Chinese source has ever been produced. The entry says that the nearest related Chinese expression conveys the sense that it is better to live as a dog in an era of peace than a man in times of trouble. No one here would disagree that we certainly live in interesting times in terms of support for creative endeavour, a time where participants are easily tormented and often quick to complain. Although the reference to living as a dog does, I think, give a bad rap to dogs. One of the few creatures on our planet given over almost entirely to a state of happiness, bliss and congeniality, a rather different state of being from that of the current support landscape for our creators and creative enterprises and the tensions which proliferate across it. But I digress. The dictum about interesting times well describes the events of 2015 when we witnessed a new kind of surprise action and approach to change in arts funding from the then Minister, Senator Brandes. Or in this building, I suppose I should say, from the Attorney-General. It was unusual in the modern era, although it follows in a long line of what I may term frustration statements over the last 30 years. There was that spirited broadside from October 1985 in the House of Representatives from Barry Cohen, the then Minister for Home Affairs, in which he shared his frustrations over numerous public commentaries and representations about inadequate funding made by various respondents to the Australia Council, which he believed to be unfair and inaccurate. Of course, the type of cuts made by Brandis and the huge bifurcation of funds to his deep department initiated on his watch were rather different from the Cohen parliamentary commentary. The statement was also profoundly different from the significant intervention and substantial supplementation of funds with Paul Keating's Creative Nations Statement from October 1994, which memorably made the largest additional arts allocations across the board since Whitlam made um, similar huge increases in the 1970s. There were many notable beneficiaries from Keating's intervention, including, to name but a few, a range of fellowship programs to individual artists, independence for our symphony orchestras with large supplemental funding for the SSO and MSO, the funding of Bangara and the establishment of the Australian National Academy of Music. This was government commitment at its rare best at its rare best value and is something which one hopes will always be held high and quite separate from partisan politics. The point is that political interventions are of course natural and inevitable in the cycle of life. What is to be derided is when they happen without respect for debate, thoughtful engagement and transparent policy process. Minister Brandis stated his view as to a need for an undefined contestability in the allocation of funds directly from the Minister's Department, separately from the Australia Council. And while there may have been a clear rationale in the mind of the Government for the change, it was impossible to respond in an informed way due to the stark absence of any accompanying policy statement. There was no recital of coherent policy reasons other than one assumes a desire to do things differently. Apart from the action excising 100 million from the council to the department in the following year and forward estimates period, that money was to be spent in a wholly original manner of what might only be termed a watch this space style. There was no policy accompanying the statement beyond the blunt financial action. Borderline unbelievable, but wholly true. Probably unsurprising, as there was an absence of any published cultural policy underpinning to the government from the previous election. There was literally no policy on arts and culture. Any such statement of policy is now, I am sure, a work in progress. The new Minister for the Arts, Mitch Fairfield, recently told The Australian that he is working on additional ways to support the arts, identify gaps and get the system running more smoothly. He also emphasised the importance of the arts to an innovative nation. And while the arts are so much more than what they can contribute to innovation, I agree with the Minister that an encouraged, rich artistic culture is central to an innovative country. We all then wait with keen anticipation on the Minister's further announcements and I would add resonantly, we're happy to help. And I do mean that sincerely because sadly we have clearly arrived at a new public policy nadir in the arts and culture generally. Often cardboard political managerialism reigns supreme. We have mistrust, surly silence and word barrages at 50 paces on both sides of the respondent provider aisle. The consistent theme is an absence of dutiful, constructive exchange with a view to considered defensible policy resolve. It is, to use one of the central euphemisms of the current day, a personal favourite of mine, not suboptimal. I suggest it's time for policy change with better mutual understanding. Time for fresh thinking and extensive renovation. Time to abandon (coughs) shibboleths and renew analyses in the setting of priorities. Time to rethink the policy underpinnings to secure our cultural futures with constructive debate, which embraces calm argument and respectful engagement. In today's charged landscape, we have to apply creativity and flair to reimagining how we grow the opportunities, improve political and community connections, and develop a better sense of trust, ownership, and connection with creative and intellectual life. I offer the not particularly original view that whilst the advocacy to government must never cease, on all available evidence, the flow of funds to creative endeavour from government is unlikely to grow well or reliably. The political rejectionist recital is long and on public display often. Health, school education, roads, national security, and social welfare with an insert new issue here approach are offered as defences against increased public commitment to creative and intellectual aspiration. An inevitable impact on excellence, talent and innovation follows. Indeed, last year's Australia Council cuts were entirely directed at the peer-reviewed arm's length from government grant process. This, of course, explains the electric response of the small to medium sector and of individual artists generally. It also accounts for the surprisingly vast number of submissions which exceeded 2,000 to the Senate inquiry which followed. Sadly, political statements can often sound, no doubt unintentionally, as if aimed at making arguments diminishing of creative work and its place in the pantheon of public responsibility. The evidence supports a fairly subdued view on prospects but I'll revert to this shortly. In Rules of Engagement, I emphasise that as a result of many of the technology and allied behavioural changes which we are all experiencing, effective leadership has changed markedly. These forces are not subtle. Indeed, they are immutable and unstoppable and have an almost tectonic force. I've been speaking a lot over the course of the last two years about digital disruption. Most recently, last October, I gave the Geoffrey Bolton Oration in Western Australia on cultural futures in an age of digital disruption. In that speech, I made reference to what I would describe as strands of the public academy, a public academy which has a vital role as never before in meeting unprecedented challenges, applying new methodologies to deliver better outcomes in forging bonds between creators and communities. The academy is a much-loved term within tertiary education frameworks from its grand past history. I think we need to revitalise it in the sense of its platonic origins as refreshed with a well-fashioned sense of Aristotelian purpose. Now, I don't mean to sound distant and highfalutin, as Mark Twain would say, But it can't do anything other than help to recall that amongst many distinguished participants in that first academy, Plato and Aristotle were given to study and problem solving from broad perspectives firmly rooted in philosophy and mathematics with decent devotion to discourse on the arts, the natural world and of course politics and the direction and purposeful management of government. In our world, that connection between the academy and the community is too often sorely tested. We need to refashion the bonds between both because there is such interdependence core to their mutual future, societal health and national priorities. Fortunately, in the modern era, we have extensions of the formal academy, which now constitute what I describe as a public academy, or perhaps it should be termed the extended academy including but by no means limited to such things as our media and all the commentary and information it provides. It then extends to our varied performing arts companies, our museums, galleries and libraries, bodies like the Syro, other research and public thought-based institutes, our grand sporting contests, our remarkably diverse publishers and of course the huge range of individual creators across a spectrum of original work. Add to that landscape of the extended economy what we are all currently experiencing everywhere. I refer here to the huge confrontational components which follow from the velocity and pervasive nature of change in the 21st century. This phenomenon of never-ending change arises from the radically transformed behaviours and expectations which follow from the pervasive application and growth of digital technologies. These forceful changes require adaptive ingenuity and the need to change policies and allied organisational cultures ground up in order to maintain real understanding and core relevance in the traditional academy, and in my view, it's quite vital extension in the public academy. Navigating, managing, and at times confronting these potent forces, which both drive and demand reconfiguration in society, is not easy. Relevant responses with new approaches are essential to driving workable, connected futures. The impact in the public and private sector is equally massive. A sense of core purpose and focus on quality of thought is remarkably vulnerable. There stands a tantalising test for us all. All strands of endeavour are experiencing turbulence as never before. The impact on politics and the direction of governments is presently altogether unclear. Dramatic change is everywhere, as reflected in utterly different commercial and social operating models and behavioural responses. The game has changed, and the public knows it. It almost smells it. And the need for fresh responses is readily apparent, as seen in the way that even public vocabularies have changed. Agility and innovation are now bywords internationally. Almost incredibly, algorithm has become part of common parlance, and The Economist, in its splendid publication, Frugal Innovation, has even developed a new acronym to describe the governing social personality, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity, which have become the bywords for the current era's personality. I'm sure you'll all have your own examples of this change, but I think few of you would disagree that it's upon us like a never-ending hurricane. In all the turbulence, many of our most prominent cultural institutions confront issues of relevance and close community connection. As importantly, they must confront an enemy which provides a fascinating paradox in an information-rich age. I refer here to what I would describe as the unwavering march of what I could only describe as the general ignorance. We see it in many diverse media places, in the rage which dominates so much exchange on the internet and in a variety of social flare-ups which rebound with increasing regularity. Clearly, the majority of politicians in Australia on both sides of the house do not embrace the sorts of extremities or deliberate polarities seen in the current USA Republican presidential nomination debates. There, as so eloquently described in a recent piece by George Wills in the New York Review, to accept enlightenment values, reason, facts, science, open-mindedness, tolerance, secularity, modernity, is to lower one's guard against evils like evolution, concern about global warming, human equality across racial and sexual and religious lines. A similar groundswell has started here, and it's often unopposed. This is the world in which we live today. I think we all need to do something about it. And one of many solutions is revitalised cultural policy with, I think, greater allowance for recourse to philanthropy incentives. We need old-fashioned direct connection to creative work and the many outcomes which follow from it, because our world cries out for public commitments on the things we care about, like knowledge-based debate, the primacy of truth and the centrality of intellect, imaginative thought, creativity and deep reflection to a good society. I mean philanthropy in a broad sense, for example, we need to generate real involvement in the provision of support for volunteering. Volunteering in society is diminishing and needs huge reimagining through the provision of gratis or deeply discounted goods and professional services and old fashioned personal time given over to endeavours about which we care. Such commitment then extends to the need for more committed public advocacy and resilient connection and debate coming from the community itself, and vigorously so, with politicians, commentators, and all the touch points which move public opinion and devotion. Finally, and vitally, we need to up the ante on the provision of old-fashioned cash. Direct investment on a substantially enlarged scale is essential. All these forms of commitment not only have real value but they provide the possibility for a better sense of connection and purpose. They spread the support base for successful creative futures and it is that future we have to refashion. It's hardly original on my part to say that the quality of our creative and intellectual life in the arts, humanities and sciences provides the crucible for our future as a society. The drive to put it front and center is unlikely to come from government, although that would be welcome. Nevertheless, it has to come from many sources, and what better place than from the community that actually generates the work united with an extended and growing supporter base. We need renewal in expressions of public care and commitment, and we need to restore respect and courtesy in advancing advocacy whilst not becoming timid or anxious. Too often self-censorship from offering considered opinion has dominated public discourse over the last two or three decades. We have had increasingly politically punitive environments where there has been a contraction in the quality and richness of public debate. Too often key players opt out because of the sloganeering, fury and reductive simple-mindedness which governs too much public exchange. The fearsome trend, which we have often witnessed, rejects considered knowledge-based debate, replacing calm reason with dogmatic assertion. I would describe this process as the progressive infantilisation of Australian cultural and science policy dialogue, and it has to be opposed. There are some promising signs of change in the current political horizon, and I suggest we foster and nourish them strenuously. We have a government in energetic renewal, an opposition eager to develop policy further, and frisky crossbenchers. We are a small country at the bottom of the world, notwithstanding the internet, with many parochial pillars which, whilst they may be cheerful to some, are venomous to national ambition and achievement. A nation of 24 million which speaks English is either profoundly advantaged or potentially disabled, as a result almost entirely of its policy settings. The ambition those settings reflect and the quality of the outcomes which are achieved are core to the national future and they demand serious retuning. It is overdue that we honour our duty of intergenerational care and acknowledge the need for national ground up policy and allied resourcing review to ensure a healthy, vibrant and dynamic creative landscape, which is equally innovative, connected and ambitious. Above all, it has to be well supported and that means we all need to step up. As that vulnerable little English-speaking country, there is no future in being bland. We need bold, confident national futures which only come from ground plan policy review matched with real determination. We need courage in policy and in the resultant work which is supported. We need to respond to the digital disruption around us with confidence and imagination. Bland won't do it. Bold solutions are called for, and philanthropy in the broad sense I have set out is in my view one of the best ways to start refashioning the conversation and resetting the nature of the policy discussion and direction. After all, Many of the greatest works of art in human history came about through such imaginative connection. Most great music has been commissioned. The connection between commissioner and artist runs through history. The notion of challenge funding from individuals to government itself is long overdue for serious rejuvenation. Needless to say, such action strengthens artistic and intellectual enterprise in really interesting ways with all manner of hidden underpinnings. Our great cultural institutions, our universities, research institutes, museums, galleries, archives and state libraries and their parallel institutions in the performing arts now operate in a difficult, often confusing context. They can, however, if purposefully renewed through applying their resources imaginatively, develop better policy approaches and communication strategies confronting this fascinating and deadly feature of our modern society where the challenge is to confront the march of the general ignorance, head-on, no ifs, no buts. A head-on direct knowledge attack, a challenge for our great collecting institutions in particular, our museums, galleries and the great archives and libraries of our nation in the year 2016 and beyond. A challenge which is both confronting and really healthy a challenge which has many component parts. Part of the new contemporary challenge is seen where the instant expert presents views on a daily basis. The challenge of that sense of instant expertise is empowered with remarkable resources as never before, invariably from the friendly, omnipresent computer in your pocket with immediate access to so much, some would argue virtually all of the world's accumulated knowledge a wonderful phenomenon in many ways but, and it's a very big B-U-T, so often the reception of that information is absent the discipline of listening, analysing, synthesising and assessing in terms of context, relevance, perspective and the necessary scepticism which conditions all good disciplined thought. Disciplined thought, which provides the bedrock of clear thinking and good learning. All too often it is also absent the inherent insatiable curiosity, which drives real evolution and improvement in thought, teaching and learning, which is core in knowledge acquisition and transfer for humanity. Curiosity and its valuable or rather essential partner, scepticism, are frequently absent in the search for that immediate answer and the opportunity to present an instant technology facilitated opinion. We live in a bizarre netherworld where narcissism increasingly rules the day, a netherworld where citizens feel unconstrained in offering opinions, often extraordinarily firm, confident ones with alarming assertiveness on the altar of nothing more than their own feelings. As we saw it termed in the endearing film, The Castle, the all-important vibe. Often opinions are landed with no more perspective than a single, often anonymous source on any diversity of subjects without regard to perspective, alternate propositions and in blind disregard for the time taken to think, learn, test, refine and then finally offer a thoughtful, informed response. This approach was in the past usually seen as essential to the process of providing considered opinion. There, opposes poses a core challenge to the extended public academy. How do we refashion the grand institutions of social memory and artistic expression to respond in ways that unite people with the enduring value of beauty and the glory of knowledge and study afresh? Done in a way which is imbued with humility and at its best, an enduring sense of wonder even revelation. The quality of renewal in community connection is, I suggest, central to ensuring a more positive outlook, and there is much to take heart from across the diverse strands of the traditional and public academies. Fortunately, the sense of devoted responsibility to public engagement and giving is on the advance. There are too many exemplary individuals who have committed in very substantial measure in recent years to isolate them and name them individually. They mirror the continuing spirit since the creation of the Sydney Meyer Fund or the Felton bequest at the National Gallery of Victoria. It's a very squeaky stand, isn't it? Or those from Mitchell and Dixon to the State Library of New South Wales to mention but four of the grand cultural philanthropists. Cultural leadership in a digital era has many very real continuing challenges. The audience has many distractions, not the least of which is the self-obsession of many, especially where evidence from various studies reveals really substantial increases in personal assertiveness, self-importance and, as I mentioned, narcissism, with a clear cultural shift focusing on the self to the detriment of community. I'd suggest this means for audience connection and stimulation to work, It requires new skill sets where there are so many touch points which are often increasingly fuzzy and diffuse. A renewal in philanthropy as a catalyst is going to be increasingly important through everything from crowdfunding, one of the really wonderful new energies from technology change, through to volunteering and substantial commitment of personal time and direct financial investment. Digital chemistry and personality permeates all communication documentation, exhibition and engagement in the 21st century. It provides a central methodology for access as we have never seen it before. Needless to say, however, the core logic, intelligence and imagination has to come from the settings of our great institutions and equally an army of individuals and smaller enterprises which need to reinvent their audience relationship in a way which understands the gravity of the challenge and coherently and creatively entices or captivates the community anew. I'd suggest they need to offer exciting challenge and even at times provocation in the service of liberating their collections and both the knowledge which they contain and a refashioned methodology geared to encouraging deep thinking. If we care about history and love our collections and the people who made the documents, paintings, books, sculptures, maps, manuscripts, and so on and so on, and the tools that inform them, then we owe them the continuing honour of rethinking the challenge of community connection. That challenge must be accepted clearly in a way which avoids being patronising and celebrates the journey itself, the journey inherent to the joy of discovery and learning. It must devote itself to direct participation because there lies, in my view, our renewal pathway. In an era where government too regularly is inclined to treat money as the measure of all things rather than as one but one of many measures and where the raison d'etre in political life is too often about holding office at every possible cost with a drive on the part of some to extreme cynicism, then I think that we need to encourage direct community participation in intellectual and creative life very much more vigorously. Old fashioned notions of mutual enterprise and even cooperatives are not out of place in this process. Not only because realistically, every single pointer is to to contraction in public resources, but also because we need to define support more directly and draw from the energy contained in the process of direct commitment to refashion the landscape. Notwithstanding headline contributors, Australia is a middle-order country in personal and charitable giving. As a relatively medium tax jurisdiction, and we are a medium tax jurisdiction, it has a comparatively moderate position in philanthropic cash commitments, with some singular exceptions who stand out for their magnanimity. The level of giving relative to our national wealth is constrained. Here are a few observations to think about. First, let's look at the broad philanthropic pie. Unfortunately, the latest tax office data on deductible gift giving is only current to 2011-12. As I understand it, there is not a lot of change in the fundamentals, especially with the economic headwinds experienced since then. Total annual individual giving is at around $2.4 billion, which represents on average between 0.35 and 0.4% of disposable income. This has remained relatively static, excluding the recent remarkable Paul Ramsey benefaction of over $3 billion, which one hopes will provide a positive paradigm shift. The best comprehensive analytical overview on giving is rather dated, being QUT's Centre for Philanthropy and Nonprofit Studies, which was conducted in late 2008, or I should say was released in late 2008. On available but uneven information, there is, I'm told, little real movement from that study, which detailed as best could be told in that year, that ultra high net worth giving is a fraction of that in the United States. The high-end overview looks like this. Those on incomes of $1 million plus are giving around 2% of their gross income. There are now several thousand high net worth Australian individuals or families with $20 million in investable assets outside their homes. It is estimated they give 1 to 1.5% of their wealth away, whereas comparable data in the US suggests 10% plus is donated. Now the U.S. figures are slightly skewed by the exceptional generosity of people like Bill Gates, Warren Buffett and the swarm of others in what I like to refer to as the huge giver cohort. (laughs) The rule is that the USA is still much higher proportionately, and I mean much higher proportionately, amongst the mega wealthy who have greater propensity for philanthropic giving. Average personal giving in Australia is about $460 with an average number of 2.6 givers per household and average net wealth per household of around $700,000, which is about $1,200 in giving per household, or 0.17% of wealth. The supremely rich here on what data is available when actual gifts are made and analysed represents around 0.2% of net wealth. In other words, they join the other 8 million Australian households who are nearly as generous. Now, there are, as I said before, some splendid exceptions. In the private ancillary fund space, which came about as another of David Gonski's remarkable policy advocacies, there is really encouraging news. Over $3 billion has been committed to um, to PAFs, with over 1,400 having been established. Annual giving from this pool is now at around $250 million per annum. Analysis from Australian Philanthropic Services suggests the portion of this pool going to cultural causes is typically 7 to 8%, with other major beneficiaries being welfare and education, which combined receive over 50%, and then there are a profusion of other PAF allocations But I won't go into into them because some of them make me so damn cranky. Like all the paths that are dedicated to funky religions. And I'm serious. In quick summary, a solid constructive commitment from the community with real room for growth, especially in the high net worth sector. Colleagues, plenty of room for all of us in which to make a good continuing case. One thing which becomes readily apparent in reviewing research is an alarming deficit of reliable, up-to-date data. There is also way too little public transparency about the quantum and allocation of giving. It requires attention. Similarly, the data bank on public funding is unusually slender with an absence of comprehensive financial details and trend analyses across the modern era since the 1970s. If we're going to get more action in both arenas, we need recourse to better data sets. In a digitally literate, data-rich world, this is a fundamentally urgent priority. Now let's look at the Australia Council and its overall allocation over the last 10 years, up until 2014-15, before the recent action in dramatic fund siphoning between the Council and the Minister's Department. Across coalition and labour administrations, the performance has been convincing in the absence across time of real growth. Funding has essentially been at or below inflation, rising from 158 million in 2005-06 to 212 million in 2014-15. With the priority to the major employing companies, there has been an inevitable impact on primary creators and small companies. It is more than the law of unintended consequences, but it's not driven by the Australia Council at all. The same story applies to the ABC and SPS, except for single limited life supplemental initiatives on specific content proposals, which have now lapsed. The funding has not increased. In fact, it's gone down slightly. The story is the same in most collecting institutions. Screen Australia has had a similar experience. Ten years is a pretty long trend line and the indicators are unpromising in terms of any real improvement in parliamentary financial commitments. We have a performing arts landscape where the relative funding levels from government as ratios against box office for major state theatre companies, opera and orchestras are, outside the United States, amongst the lowest in the developed world. In the nine years of my chairing the Sydney Opera House, Whilst we were successful in significantly increasing the maintenance allocations to the building, it is, as I reminded many politicians, built on the sea, there was not a single dollar increase in actual, let alone real terms, for the operational funding of the enterprise. Operational funding was static. In fact, it had a slight decline across the whole period. A reduction in real terms of around 30%. In that nine year term. And whilst it made the enterprise more efficient, it really did make it very much more efficient, it hardly provided a healthy incentive or confidence about the future. <laughs> the once great trend setting Australian policy commitment to funding writers and literature, with proud antecedents in the Commonwealth Literary Fund, the Public Lending Right, and the Literature Board of the Australia Council, is now but a shadow of its past and writers have taken a financial body blow over the years. There is, despite a welter of true devotion within the funding institutions themselves, evident passive neglect in terms of priorities on both sides of politics. I put it to you that things simply have to change, and the community of creators and the audiences which care about their quality of support must do something about it openly and purposefully. That advocacy battle must never diminish, it is our duty of care. However, we must also activate widespread public giving as there is too much to lose in momentum and more importantly talent if we don't. We must recognize there is no sinning in a mixed economy in funding creative work. There is no inherent worthiness in money from government as compared with that from private sources. It's more about the what how and why from both sources. Transparency and clarity address most policy pitfalls. It is imperative we seek to secure strong direct support from individuals and others, either as alternate avenues or to challenge, match or drive government spending, and of course, vice versa. Indeed, many of our best universities and institutions, such as performing arts companies, are already doing that with fabulous energy and foresight. The practical reality is we have to get fresh sources of support and the likeliest candidates for new support are going to reflect a broad cross-section of community members. Many benefits attaching to that approach are manifestly evident. Increased diversified funding sources, wider advocacy frameworks, reinforced independence, and a diversity of talent and approaches. Finally, it can only result in better and expanded community association, which in this connected world is central to relevance and direction for all endeavor. Hopefully the creative community itself, together with a wide as yet unevenly tapped base of supporters, will seize the day and drive a program for lasting reform which addresses the issues holistically and doesn't repeat the present cycle of dreary 20th century policy recitals. We have to invent fresh approaches. The failure of most political agendas in creative life is, I suggest, our collective failure. The absence of fresh approaches, which are both relevant and compelling, reflects a failure to renovate thinking where many working settings are frankly in a time capsule. Too much current thinking is frozen in space and time from three or even four decades ago in policy, regulatory, financial and industrial frameworks. We've made little progress, far too little progress, since the first large-scale funding changes from when the Commonwealth and states commenced serious creative funding in the early 1970s. The disturbing absence of effective cultural policy action in recent years has seen our political culture descend descend into an era of petty sloganeering and serial passive neglect of the vital creative foundations to a confident national future we all must seize the day engaging and advocating persuasively for that which we care about persuading commentators and decision makers as to policies where creative creativity and intellectual property production provide bedrock for relevant national agendas providing long-term public and providing and serving the long-term public interest this is an era of culture imperatives we hear the word invoked all the time in my view, there's nothing wrong with the capital C for culture. Time for new mousetraps, mouse as they say. Thank you for listening.
3: Uh, I just wanted on, on your behalf to thank Kim for an outstanding Uh, lecture reminding us so much of the importance of public duty um, as he's done and if I may just raise two reflections directed to policy issues which are on the current agenda. The first concerns the place of this discussion in the context of the tax debate which we're currently in the midst of and I, I wonder whether we should be putting philanthropy up on the agenda of the tax debate, and looking at promoting the acceleration of incentives for philanthropy um, as a cultural imperative, as in fact is done in in the United States example. The second thing I want to say is uh, that, um, speaking on behalf of the Australian Book Review's perspective on writing and publishing, we need to very carefully uh, dispel the idea that the work of, of, of the practitioners themselves is an act of charity, commanding um, support merely through philanthropy. Philanthropy, of course, is critical. Uh, and at the ABR, we are so much adv- uh, advantaged by the philanthropic support we receive. But at the same time, one of the focuses of ABR has been on the proper remuneration of authors and until we lend respect to the uh, creative work of authors through ensuring their proper remuneration, both through support for philanthropy and ensuring that they're paid properly for their work, will be inevitably a lesser culture. And I wanted to raise a policy issue which is close to both Kim and I, Kim through his work in copyright agency and my own interest in copyright. And that is the question of, incidentally, of territorial copyright. And the, and the mistake that we're making through the abandonment of uh, the restrictions on parallel importation in favour of the great God consumer. I think one of the points that Kim was making is that, is that we need to be much more focused on public duty and obligation ahead of the interests of consumer. Uh, and territorial copyright protects the opportunities of writers to be paid properly as they trade their copyright in different jurisdictions, we're about to abandon it and I think it's a mistake. I just wanted to uh, offer those uh, observations in response to what's been an absolutely outstanding, thoughtful and much appreciated lecture on uh, Kim's part and we're so grateful and honoured to have received that lecture as introductory one of our in our patrons program so thank you Kim uh, now uh, before we uh, conclude tonight we did want to provide an opportunity for questions or comments uh, we have a few minutes available and Kim's very kindly agreed to respond to anything that you'd like to raise yourselves in in uh, in response to his his lecture yes over there thank you
4: Um, uh, Thank you, Kim. I thought it was a very uh, thoughtful address and uh, I won't be throwing any intellectual napalm in your direction, I hope. Um, (laughs) I just wanted to uh, bring up two points in regards to uh, um, where we go in terms of a a cultural academy within Australia. Firstly, on a specific example, which I think is emblematic of the problem, is the uh, uh, lack of uh, music education within the public school system Now, uh, I think it's, it's an area that's, I think there's no contest that music education enhances not just Uh, the uh, appreciation of of all kinds of music of the students, but actually helps them in many other areas, particularly mathematics and science, which as we know is a particular emphasis in this new innovation age that we're gonna be led upon. So I just wanted to firstly to uh, get your response about the need for universal music education and uh, uh, how that can help, and that's maybe emblematic of how uh, things have been left behind in this new age where user pays and uh, and then secondly on a broader uh, area which, which follows on from that um, the idea of the public academy being stymied we're seeing uh, potential censorship of journalists in regards to um, uh, acts of government that they don't want uh, investigated, we're seeing um, Um, uh, cutbacks as you said in the Australia Council we're seeing um, um, ministerial oversight which again is uh, um, corralling power into smaller and smaller areas so um, is this a trend that you think is irresistible and is maybe being driven uh, possibly by um, um, media aggregation and the digital disruption that uh, is uh, attendant upon that these days Um, and can we fight against that uh, in some way, and how do you think we should or can?
2: Yeah, it's a long question. <laughs> um, in in terms of the first issue, I I think music education is absolutely fundamental to um, liberating creativity in all human beings, and I think Australia is one of the poorest nations in delivering reliable quality music education to students. Um, in private schools, the situation is is better in privileged private schools, but, but generally the standard of music education in Australia is deplorable. Uh, there are some elements in Queensland that survive well, uh, which is about the only state that has a fairly long and uninterrupted proud history of music education. But when you compare Australia to what is happening in China, for example, or when you compare Australia to what is happening in most of the of the European, the northern European states principally, um, it's, it's a pretty sorry condition. And music is quite fundamental to intellectual facility and creative facility and enhances facility not only in obvious things like, like language, uh, but facilitates a much greater um, neural productivity in mathematics and philosophy and a variety of other things. Um, music is fundamental to a well-rounded education, and Australia is very wimpy in its approach to addressing um, music education. In dealing with digital disruption, I think digital disruption is, is pervasive and it is never-ending and it affects everything. I think what is increasingly apparent in a lot of digital disruption is that people don't welcome reasoned exchange. And um, there's a very good book written by by Nick Carr, called "The Shallows," what the internet is doing to our brains, which is not a luddite book, but it's a book that is about the way in which the process of deep thinking, of deep reading and deep thinking, is being severely compromised by virtue of technology and the way in which we apply technology. Um, I was asked before I gave this talk, talk, and I don't mean it rudely to the person who asked me, but was asked um, what was my Twitter handle, and I said. Um, it's private because I, I observe tweets but I do not tweet and I do not retweet because I, I actually have real issues with the absence of considered respectful dialogue in most of those environments. Now I know there are exceptions, I know Twitter's mostly about sending links to each other but it, it really I, I think it's a, a kind of intellectual crevasse that is, is really quite Seriously comprom- compromising of the process of thinking. And, and so I, I'm a big defender of debate, and I, I think political censorship in Australia is alive and very real, and it grows regularly. It's very hard to have real debate in Australia now.
5: Let's go ahead. Hi, uh, that was, I liked your speech quite a lot, um, and also your. The thoughts surrounding technology, I saw a video you gave to some financial institution or something and I think that's, yeah, that's a similar way to I see it. I was actually kind of ask for some advice. Um, my kind of aspiration, which I acknowledge is rather grand, but I would hope it would be that way at my age, um, is to to head a, a a publishing firm or house, I don't say, that uh, takes a more active role in in developing literature and investing in um, artists and also fostering a, a level of collaboration, which I see as completely absent from fiction and literature. Uh, I find narrative to be a collaborative form, um, but the culture of it is completely not. And we see in journalism, we see in film and TV, in music and all other things and in business that people understand that collaborative nature is productive and effective. Um, and so (laughs) at the moment, though it's, uh, you know, I foster relationships with the people I meet at this university who are amazing and all of those sorts of things. But, um, further down the track at the end of this year, when I graduate my degree, I, I'm, I'm aspiring, I guess, to maybe try and convince, um, or create some sort of role at a publishing them where I could more proactively seek work, and I just I'm kind of interested how I would go about that. I'm or guessing. It. <laughs> well, I, I have the sense
2: that you will find a way, and all, all power to your arm.
3: Um, keep going. We'll take one more question, Yes, Jessica. Hi, thank you very much. Um, I work in, uh, I'm a philanthropy manager at an arts organisation, and one of the major issues I I face is to, you know, when I'm asking people for money, they sort of ask, well, why, you know, why not heart disease? Why not starving children, you know? And it it is true that, I mean, you quoted some very interesting figures tonight, and it, it changes my perception somewhat, but it is true that we are asking the same people, a lot of the time, to reach into their pockets, and they have Charitable commitments elsewhere. How, what is the answer to that? Why the arts? Why not other areas of support?
2: Well, I mean, the cliched response would be that that you know human beings do not live on bread alone. Um, you know, giving is not about cancer alone. <laughs> there are <laughs> lots of other partner processes that make our world a better and richer and 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 altogether more more livable place. And issues of of intellect and creativity are fundamental to our national future, they are the, the, these are the most precious products and if we are to see them nourished and, and, and to see them flourish in, in the way that I think instinctively most people know they need to, um, we need to get personally involved and that it, people can have a lot of fun doing that as well. Um, which is something I think people often forget It. I mean, direct, developing direct relationships with... I mean, I've had a very, very, very... My wife and I have had a very happy life in that we've had artists in our life always, and we've, we've been able to support them across so many different things sometimes. I think Catherine thinks we're a bit too magnanimous in that way, but, but it, it's a huge amount, of, huge amount of pleasure and fun being able to commission pieces of music or being able to commission new plays or being able to support the production of, of really brilliant young directors and see them, you know, go on through their careers. Um, it's a it's a really exciting thing and it, 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 it can actually do a good thing but also have a very very personal, meaningful outcome.
3: Good. Oh, there's oh, one last, okay, well, towards one last question.
0: Thanks, Kim. That was inspiring and uplifting and incredible. I wondered if you think there's a role for a national policy think tank um, for culture in Australia? I think there's a, a level of despair, particularly among the small to medium sector that we haven't seen before on the back of the cuts to the Australia Council, and there's no voice, one voice, to bring it all together. Could that um, work?
2: Yeah, yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's a, 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 an overdue Initiative. I know of one foundation that is looking at that issue very closely currently, and is considering the possibility of funding such a such a body, um, in in with a, a few other competing proposals. And hopefully, that's a proposal that might might win through. Um, I, I was really surprised. Peter asked me to do this this lecture last year, and so I've been going through stats and trying to get information. It really is very, very, very difficult to get the information and to align the information properly. Even looking at the the Australia Council numbers, you you have to take things in and out that, that, you know, like, you have to... If you go back before the separation of the orchestras from the ABC, it becomes very, very difficult to actually get reliable data that goes right through the whole timeline. I
0: completely agree with that. Because I I actually
2: intended in today's speech to find out what has happened in real terms in funding from 1973-04, which was the first big increase to arts funding in Australia when, when, when it went from... 6.9 Um, Six point nine million dollars to fourteen million dollars, which and it seems odd and small now, but you know it was doubled overnight, and then it went from seven and I remember because I was there it, and then it went from seven in seventy three four to seventy four seventy five it went from fourteen million dollars to twenty one million dollars and I can remember people <laughs> complaining, and I said, What are you talking about? we just got a fifty percent increase' <laughs> Um, so that these were, these were I, I, and I, I just was not able to do it. And I, I actually rang around to lots of different people and I got, I got some friends to, who are, data hounds to you know, actually go through a whole lot of old budget. Repair. They just, they, they just, just in the there. time, we weren't able to do it. It is able, to, it's capable of being done. But it just, we, we, we couldn't get the information. I wanted it to be accurate.
3: Look, uh, thank thank you very much, everybody. Uh, Can I also express our thanks to Sydney University, to Sydney Ideas and to you, our supporters, patrons and subscribers to the ABR. Can I invite you all to express your appreciation and thanks to Kim for what's been an outstanding lecture and and, uh, thank you. Thank you very much.